We're looking at uh, Is Full Preterism a Damnable Heresy Part 5 and uh, we're going to Lord willing, finish Corinthians next week, but today we're going to look at Revelation 20, 11 to 15. It's something that has to be considered if you're talking about the end of the world and uh, whether or not the paradigm of full preterism is correct. Um, so we'll look at that, and then Lord willing, we'll look, uh, we'll look at Corinthians next week. And I want to look at the new heavens and the new earth in chapter 21 as well of Revelation. <clears throat> but let me read 11 to 15. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. Okay, a better reading, the, 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 uh, the majority text and the critical text both say, standing before the throne. You've got to remember that the Textus Receptus, the book of Revelation, the Textus Receptus was produced by Erasmus. And uh, he did not even have a Greek version of Revelation. So he translated the Latin back into Greek, and it's, it's, it's not a good text for Revelation. So the way to go is with the majority text, which is a good, it is the preferred text. We don't agree with the critical text. However, it does agree with the majority text here. So... <clears throat> I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God and uh, standing before the throne. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. And death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This ended the reading of God's holy word. Either this refers to the final judgment, which is the traditional Christian view, the orthodox view, or it refers to something that happened in AD 70. We're going to exegete this, not spend too much time on it, we'll spend a day on it, but we have to go through this and we'll see that it, it doesn't fit with AD 70 at all. Um, and uh, it'll be helpful. Now this is John's sixth vision of the book of Revelation. The formula that I saw indicates a new topic. <clears throat> Jesus will show John what happens at the end of the millennium. Okay, this comes right after the description of the millennium. Remember, the millennium is not in the future. The millennium begins with the resurrection of Christ, Revelation, I think it's three, when Satan is bound. Now, how is Satan bound? He's bound that he can no longer deceive the nations as he once did. So the gospel can go forth to all the nations. We're in the millennium right now. So this occurs at the end of the millennium. When pre-consummate history comes to an end, the final resurrection of the dead occurs, and Jesus sits in judgment on all men who ever lived. The focus here is on the last judgment of unregenerate mankind. Now, it includes all men. And it talks about those who are in the book of life. But the focus is really on judgment here, because that's the, one of the major themes of judgment. 
The main topic of Revelation is on judgment, especially with a focus on those who opposed and persecuted Christ's church. Another related topic is on Christ's deliverance of his people from the persecution of unbelievers. If you were persecuted, if you were murdered, if you were killed by unbelievers, uh, a time is coming at the end of history when there is perfect justice. Now, while it is true that much of Revelation is concerned with things which must shortly take place, Revelation 2.1, and it is important for the readers of the book to pay close attention to the prophecies and be obedient, for the time is near... Revelation 1.3, it is exegetical malpractice to ignore the immediate context of Revelation 20, verse 11, uh, 11 and following, and claim that everything in the book of Revelation had to take place by A.D. 70. The, the things, uh, it's very common in prophecy, if you, if you study the Old Testament prophecy, it'll talk about things that are near at hand, that affect the people that the letter is written to or the prophet is speaking to. And then God will jump into the distant future and tell us things that are critical because perfect justice really doesn't occur till the, till the end. And in Isaiah, for example, uh, they'll be talking about the situation of Israel's judgment. And then all of a sudden in the middle of the prophecy, oh, by the way, a virgin's going to have a child and this is going to be the Messiah. Well, that isn't near at hand. That's in the distant future. That's hundreds of years away. So this idea that everything in the book of Revelation has to take place by AD 70, and everything in the book of Revelation, it doesn't say everything in the book. Those things, that must shortly take place. And then he'll shift. He talks about the whole millennium, and then he talks about the end of the world and the judgment to show that yeah, God judges Israel for the persecution of, of Christians, and of course he's going to judge Rome too, but there's perfect justice at the end of the world. Uh, the, you know, the arguments of full preterists are simplistic, and you know the, the fact that there's similar language of judgment in Matthew 24 with passages that talk about the end of the world, so what? There's similar things in the Old Testament. That doesn't mean the passages in the Old Testament talk about coming on the clouds and coming in glory and all those kind of things. Those don't refer to the, they obviously don't refer to the second coming. But we'll get to that in application. So to claim that everything in the book of Revelation had to take place by AD 70 is simply not true. It's just nonsense. The resurrection of the dead unbelievers, their judgment by the glorified Christ, and sentence, the second death, or the casting, of, casting into the lake of fire, takes place at the end of the 1,000-year reign of Christ, the millennium, which has already lasted almost 2,000 years. Remember the number 1,000 in Scripture, the numerology, um, I should add a footnote to this or something, a lengthy quote about, if you study how that's used, it's used of a very, either a very large number of something or a very lengthy period of time. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Well, in the world, there's hundreds of thousands of hills. Does God only own the cattle on a thousand hills? No, he owns all the cattle. So it refers to the whole period between the resurrection of Christ and the second coming of Christ. That's the millennium. So it occurs at the end of the millennium, 
not near the end of only 40 years. That's extremely problematic. Russell just ignores it. He admits it's a big problem, but he doesn't answer the problem. There are other insurmountable problems for the full preterist interpretation. First, Revelation 20, verse 9, the camp of the saints in the beloved city can only refer to the Christian church or new covenant believers, not a literal earthly Jerusalem filled with unbelieving Jews surrounded by Roman armies. The new covenant church is called the New Jerusalem, Revelation 21, 9, 22, 5. The Old Testament, to 22.5, the Old Testament prophets at times use the term Jerusalem or Zion as a symbol of the New Covenant Church. For example, Isaiah 2.2-3, where that's very clear. All nations are going to flow into Jerusalem to be taught the law of God. That's talking about the church. All commentators, except premillennialists, will admit that. The Old Testament prophets at times, <clears throat> excuse me, the literal earthly city of Jerusalem holds no significance or special place in the New Covenant era. That's very clear. Hebrews, read Hebrews 11.10, 12.22. The author of Hebrews, we don't look for an earthly city. We're not concerned with an earthly city. We look for the city above, the heavenly Jerusalem. Hebrews 13, 12 to 14, Galatians 4, 25 to, uh, 24 to 25, where he, he, he tells them go, to go outside the city, and he compares that city to Hagar. And the Christians are the, the right wife. Philippians 3, 20, John 4, 21 to 23, Revelation 21, 2. So this passage is clearly not a literal or historical parallel to Matthew 24, 1 to 34. The Christians aren't surrounded by enemies. The apostate Jews are. So how could you say that? How could you compare that to what happened in AD 70? Second, the great persecutors of the church in Revelation 27 and 9 who seek to stamp her out are not first century unbelieving Jews, but apostate Christians and heathen. Remember Satan's let out for a little while to deceive the nations? which assumes that during the millennium there's a great period of prosperity where Christians do dominate, and then Satan is let out, and that's, there's a big setback, and there's apostasy. These enemies would include ethnic, unbelieving, or secular Jews, but the situation described is one where, after a very long period of Christian growth, dominance, and dominion, for example, Isaiah 2, 1-2, 11-4, 13-15, 49.23, where it talks about kings and queens giving money to the church and bowing to the, you know, serving the church. Isaiah 65.20-23, Psalm 2, Psalm 72, 4.9 and 27, and Psalm 110.1 and following. After a very long period of Christian growth, dominance, and dominion, the devil is allowed to sway nations, cultures, peoples, away from the truth to a position of hatred toward the church. Very simple. What's, what is happening in our day? In Canada, a man is in jail. A, a pastor is in jail. Because he does not agree with the transgendered nonsense. 
and the Democratic Party hates Christians. And when a guy comes up for the Supreme Court who's just a Roman Catholic, which we would not consider to be a Christian, but they think he's a Christian, and they're very concerned. Are you going to follow your beliefs? Or are you going to follow secular humanism and atheism, which, which is what we teach? That's basically their whole idea. So there has been a great apostasy. But I don't, I don't think there's been enough of a conquest of the nations by Christ to say that we're at the end of the millennium. In AD 70, the Church of Christ was in its infancy and had no major influence over any nations or cultures, not even one. The Church had its problems, but there was no major apostasy. In fact, the Christianization of Europe was still in the future. Only scripture twisting and eisegesis can fit these verses into an AD 70 paradigm. How can there be a great apostasy of the nations if the nations aren't Christian yet? Remember, the Christians were persecuted by Rome until Constantine was converted, or supposedly converted, in around, what is it, 312? And then Julian the Apostate came in, and they were persecuted for a while again, and then, and then they were safe again. Remember, Satan is released to deceive the nations, Revelation 12, 20, verse 9. The Roman armies, who were made up of soldiers from the nations in the Roman Empire, who surrounded and destroyed Israel and Jerusalem, were not killing Christians, but unbelieving and persecuting Jews. They were used by the glorified Christ to punish the Jews and help the Christians. But this is not what is described in Revelation chapter 20. In Revelation 20, the apostate nations are not attacking unbelieving Jews, but faithful Christians. Remember, the Christians fled. They're in Pella. They're safe. They got out of town. Third, in AD 70, Christians are delivered from the Jews by the armies of Rome. Titus. Yet in Revelation 29, believers are delivered by fire from heaven. The image of fire from heaven, whether literal or not, you know, there are instances in prophecy where it could be used metaphorically, but whether literal or not describes a sudden supernatural intervention, not a Roman war that lasted three and a half years. What happened in the Roman War, it lasted three and a half years. And uh, they had a general, there was a pause, there was some trouble in the empire, um, and then after, and it was during the pause that the Christians fled to Pella and got out of town, because they could see the writing on the wall. Then Titus becomes, he, he's in charge, and Titus destroys Jerusalem. That is not fire, that is not a supernatural intervention. Keep in mind, once again, also that the Christians living in and around Jerusalem had already fled to Pella in the mountains due to Jesus' warning, Matthew 24, 16 to 20. 
Therefore, technically and literally, they did not need to be delivered. They were already safe. The fire from heaven terminology calls to mind the swift, unexpected, supernatural, complete destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 19.24-25, as well as the soldiers of Ahaziah who came against Elijah, 2 Kings 1.10-12. Fire from God that devours comports perfectly with the description of the second bodily coming of Christ in 2 Thessalonians 1.7-10a. Listen to this. The Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These will be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints. Now note, the class of those who receive judgment on the day Christ is revealed from heaven is universal and cannot be restricted to the Jews living in A.D. 70. You can't say that the Roman armies were devoured by fire. They were victorious. The expressions, those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, includes all non-Christians. There's nothing in the broader immediate context that limits this judgment to Israel. They simply place it in that category because of their paradigm, their presuppositions. In fact, the broad context supports the view of universal judgment, for Paul notes that the Thessalonians suffered at the hands of their own countrymen, just like the Jewish Christians suffered at the hands of unbelieving Jews, 1 Thessalonians 2.14. Read it. He says, your own countrymen. The crushing of the Jews by the Romans in AD 70 did not bring judgment upon the Greeks or the Romans living in Thessalonica. Which is about 150 miles north of Athens in Greece. It's in Macedonia. It's north of Greece. It's not a Jewish area. Were there probably Jews around? Yeah. But he says they're suffering under, by their own countrymen. They were persecuted by Greeks and Romans. Did that, were they delivered from that in AD 70? And the answer is absolutely not. That wouldn't come till 312 AD 312, when Constantine was converted. And then that was even temporary because then Justin the, was it Just, Justinian the Apostate? I forgot, I forgot his name. But he only ruled a short while, and he was replaced by a Christian. After the destruction of Jerusalem by the armies of Titus, Christians in the Roman Empire had about two centuries of persecution before them. The Thess Thessalonican Christians can be comforted for a time of full, perfect, universal judgment and deliverance is coming. <clears throat> Those who oppose them for being Christians will receive their proper punishment from Jesus Christ. In addition... They can be comforted that all those believers who had died physically before Jesus returns will be literally resurrected from the dead to be rewarded and see this perfect justice in person. 1 Thessalonians 4.13-16 Now does Christ deliver people in history 
from their persecutors? Yes, he does. He certainly does. People don't know this, but uh, anybody who studied World War II uh, deeply, uh, Hitler dealt with the Jews. And if he won the war, their plan was next to deal with the Christians. You have to understand, they, they, considered, they despised Christianity. They, they believed in uh, old ancient paganism. They were, they were heathen. They were Satan worshippers, really. And they wanted to deal with the Christian church, but they had to wait till they won the war because so many people in Germany were professing Christians, Roman Catholics and Lutherans, primarily. <clears throat> and when they, were, when they first started murdering the mentally retarded people, uh, they did that long before they killed the Jews. Uh, it was a Roman Catholic bishop that found out about it and stood up and they, they stopped doing it because they were afraid of what the Christians would do. But they had plans after World War II. If they had won the war, they had plans to persecute the Christians out of existence, which would have been difficult, <laughs> but they would have done it. That's a deliverance in history. Hitler died. <clears throat> Now, the use of fire implies the all-consuming power of God's wrath against sin and rebellion, as well as the complete destruction of God's enemies. Can you find the use of fire in the Bible, used metaphorically? Yes, you can. Does that mean that every passage is using it metaphorically? No. Whether it's used literally or not, this is not describing, it's obviously not describing what happened in AD 70. It doesn't apply at all. The Thessalonians were being persecuted by Thessalonians, by Greeks. Were they delivered in AD 70 from that? And the answer is absolutely not. Fourth, <clears throat> the devil is cast in the lake of fire and brimstone in Revelation 20, verse 10. The imagery is one of complete, total, final judgment where the devil's persecuting, deceiving power is forever destroyed. During the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, which is near the beginning of the millennium, which must last at least 1,000 years, the devil has already, had already been chained up by the glorified Christ. He was a chained devil. He was bound, we're told. When was he bound? He was bound at the resurrection. And you see all those passages about, I saw Satan falling as lightning and all sorts of stuff. That happened at the resurrection. Now, there's a lot of evil going on. The point is, is before Jesus came, the gospel, the true religion, only existed in a tiny little nation in the Middle East. I don't know how big Israel is. What is it, the size of Delaware or something? After Jesus comes, there's Christians all over the whole world. So his power has been restrained with respect to the preaching of the gospel. But the lake of fire, that's complete destruction. That's complete obliteration as far as influencing mankind. <clears throat> the devil has already been chained up by the glorified Christ at his resurrection so that Satan does not have power over the Gentiles as he did before our Lord's atoning death and resurrection. He is restrained during a very lengthy period of time, almost la already lasting about 2,000 years, so that the gospel can be preached to all nations on planet Earth, not simply the Roman Empire. See Matthew 28, 18-20, Mark 15, 15, and Acts 1, 8. 
the eternal punishment where Satan is completely defeated forever coincides with the final judgment of the wicked, where resurrected unbelievers are judged by Jesus and cast into the lake of fire, which is the second death. If the final judgment coincides with the destruction of Israel in A.D. 70, as full preterists assert, then how does one explain the satanic activity that has obviously continued throughout all pre-consummate history since? There's a great difference between being cast into the lake of fire and a, a simple binding. And once again, remember, he's let out to cause the nations to apostatize and go after the Christians. That didn't happen in AD 70. The nations weren't Christian to begin with in that, at that point. Now, the devil's activity does not contradict the binding of Satan in Revelation 22-3, for the binding of the devil is for the purpose of advancing the spread of the gospel, which has been happening throughout New Covenant history. But if Satan has been cast in the lake of fire in AD 70, there should not be any satanic activity at all after AD 70. But there clearly has. The fastest growing religion in Great Britain is witchcraft, Satanism, magic, sorcery. It's fastest growing in Great Britain and probably Northern Europe as well. Human beings are intrinsically religious beings. If you reject Christ and the gospel, you're going to go into something else. It could be the transgendered cult or the cult of secular humanism where people believe in complete absurdities. Or it could be witchcraft or it could be sorcery or just simply some false religion. Now let's look at the judge and his throne. But I hope you see that the, the attempt to harmonize Revelation 20 with AD 70, it's simply, it's totally impossible. It's just simply impossible. And that's why Russell, who I think is the wisest, and I think he's the best of the scholars, that if fumful preterism, I don't think Max King is any good, and these modern guys, none of them impress me at all. Uh, none of them impress me as good scholars at all. But I think, I think, but Russell just—he doesn't even try to deal with it because he knows he can't. Now John's vision begins with a description of the throne of judgment and the judge who sits on it. With this scene, we have the last historical event that brings to a full and complete end the old fallen creation. The complete destruction of the devil's rule and kingdom naturally leads to a description of the final judgment, where the covenantal children of Satan who rebelled against God are condemned and cast into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. This vision does not describe the beginning of the gospel dispensation and the binding of Satan, or the restoration of the Jews, or some spiritual event that accompanied the destruction of Jerusalem. It discloses the end of pre-consummate fallen world history. There's no other way to take this. This is not a difficult passage. Any other view of the passage does violence to the plain meaning of Scripture. The white throne is the throne of Yahweh, the triune God. Yet the judge who rules all nations and men in general are uh, in the gospel era from this throne, that is Jesus Christ, the Word of God, the King of kings and Lord over lords. Now the throne is white. 
for God and the Lamb are pure, holy, and righteous, and just. The sinless, perfect Son of God rides a white horse, Revelation 19.11. He sits upon a white cloud, Revelation 14.14. 14. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all, 1 John 1.5. The throne is great and exceedingly glorious. The glory of Christ and the significance of the occasion warrants it. Secular humanists who proclaim their own autonomous fiat ethics establish thrones of iniquity and perversion. Biden is a satanic, godless reprobate. Totally evil. So is the governor of California. Threatening businesses, hey, if you don't hand out this abortion pill, we're gonna, I'm going to do everything I can to destroy you. That's satanic. They establish wickedness by many of their laws. But Christ, who wrote the Ten Commandments on the stone with his own finger, establishes perfect righteousness and justice. His standard of judgment is the perfect, absolute, unchanging moral law of God. As a reward for his redemptive obedience, the theanthropic mediator, that is, he's truly God, fully man, even in his glorified state, has been assigned the task of presiding over all judgments in, in history and the final judgment at the end of history. Here's just a few passages quickly. Matthew 28, 18-19. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Past tense. When was it given to him? At his resurrection. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Romans 1.4, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Ephesians 1.20-22a, God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age that is to come. And he put all things under his feet. Philippians 2.9-10, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, and of those on earth, and of those under the earth. And then just quickly, uh, Psalm 2, 6-8, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. That's a reference to the resurrection. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of earth, the earth for your possession. And, and look up later, Psalm 110, 1-7. The point, this point is taught throughout Scripture. For example, Matthew 7, 22-23. Matthew 25, 31-32 is particularly clear. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. Now, did that happen in AD 70? No, it did not. It certainly did not. There was no separation of, of the elect from the non-elect, from the sheep from the goats in AD 70. How could there possibly be? Most people weren't even born yet. John 5, 27 to 29 concurs. The Father has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming, in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to a resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. After discussing the worldwide destruction of the flood in the days of Noah, Peter says, 2 Peter 3, 7, But the heavens and earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. 
and then also see uh, 2 Corinthians 5.10, Acts 10.42, 1731, Romans 2.16, and 14.9. The description of Christ as judge is shocking, terrifying, and sobering. From whose face heaven and earth, earth and heaven fled away. Now this indicates incredible fear for those who reject Christ at his coming and presence to judge. They are terrified to discover that the one they disregarded, disrespected, and even hated is coming full of wrath and indignation. Did that happen in AD 70? Well, to the Jews it did, but it didn't happen to all the nations, as we just read. Christ is gonna, has a hatred towards sin and rebellion against his rule. A number of commentators believe that the statement may refer to the dissolution of the old fallen order that occurs when Jesus returns. The terror and dread of unbelievers, however, will not be experienced by true Christians whose sin and guilt was punished and expiated. It was removed in the bloody cost of Calvary. They welcome the Savior with joy unspeakable and open arms of love. The destruction of the wicked coincides with their deliverance from evil men and wicked heathen and atheistic statists. And that fully is in accord with you know, Matthew 25, uh, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, Revelation 20. We don't have Christians universally welcoming Christ and being in his presence in A.D. 70. Most are not even born yet. And then we note, and this is critical, it's a universal judgment. It's not a temporary judgment. It's not a historical judgment simply against Israel, which is like the Old Testament judgments. Yes, Israel is more significant because it's the covenant nation is, getting to, is being divorced by God, and the kingdom is now, uh, even though it occurred at the resurrection, the kingdom is now totally uh, with the Christian church. That period of overlap, covenantal overlap between around AD 30 and, and AD 70, that, that period where uh, that's over in AD 70. The account makes it very clear that this judgment is universal and includes all classes and types of people. This is 12a and 13a. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before the throne. The seeking of the dead were in it. And death and Hades was delivered up the dead who were in them. Everyone who has died since the curse came upon Adam and his seed will stand before the great white throne. That obviously did not happen in AD 70. No one is excluded, whether poor or rich, powerful or inconsequential, famous or unknown, religious or irreligious, old or young. Verse 13 explicitly indicates that everyone who has died and lies in the places of the dead will be resurrected and must stand before Christ. That did not happen in AD 70. You have to completely pervert this passage to make it fit with AD 70. You have to completely get rid of its true meaning. The resurrection of the body and the judgment seat of Christ is not limited to Christians, but extends to everyone. In this passage, the focus is on the unbelieving dead. Even the wicked must be raised up in physical, non-glorified bodies to receive their final and ultimate condemnation. Even the sea will give up all the dead within it. Now the mention of the sea is significant for a number of reasons. First, both in the Universal Flood and in the Red Sea, 
the wicked were killed and consumed by God's wrath, and their bodies were irretrievable by man. The ancients attract great importance to burial, which denied those whom the sea had swallowed and whose bodies decomposed. For a corpse to be left unburied, here because of the sea's power, was an act of irreverence. And uh, look up later, Jeremiah 8, 1 to 2, 12, 16, Ezekiel 29, 5. Now, I know there's pagans who burned their dead, but we're talking about the Middle East here. Second, the fact that the sea is the most irretrievable place of the dead indicates that no one can escape the final judgment. And this point is further emphasized by the fact that death and Hades will give up all the dead they contain. That did not happen in AD 70, did it? And it's not talking about spiritual death, it's talking about physical death. Every place where the dead reside, whether in the grave or the tomb or the mountaintop or the ocean or the desert, will be emptied of the dead. Now, of course, death is a state of non-life brought on by sin and the curse. Hades is the place where the souls of unbelievers are imprisoned before the resurrection of the body. At the final judgment, the physical bodies of unbelievers, which are reunited with their souls, are condemned and cast into the lake of fire. And this vision reminds us of Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 15, 26. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. How did that occur in AD 70? Are people still dying? Are graveyards still full of people? Do people still get sick and die? The final judgment not only includes the final overthrow of Satan, the demons, and all unbelievers, but also death itself. Everything that opposed Christ and his kingdom will be cast into the lake of fire. Death and Hades are paired four times in Revelation, 1, 18, 6, 8, 12, 13, and 14, because it is the curse of death that results in the unnatural state of souls being removed from their bodies and being placed in hell. Remember, if you're not a full preterist, if you're orthodox, if you're a Christian, you understand that separating the soul from the body is unnatural. It's a consequence of sin. It's not normal. Now, to the full preterists, they have to say it's normal because they deny all these teachings. But we are assured as Christians that Christ conquered death and the curse of the cross and came out of the grave victorious. Believers are saved and safe because Jesus has the keys of Hades and death, Revelation 1.18. The complete and final conquest and destruction of all our Lord's enemies, including death itself, cannot be harmonized with the full preterist A.D. 70 paradigm. If death is defeated and forever banished from the new heavens and the new earth and in the lake of fire, then why does death continue in full force after A.D. 70? And what they do is they spiritualize everything and they make it, you know, it refers to people being released from Hades in A.D. 70 or it refers to regeneration. It has nothing to do with the physical body because they're Neoplatonists and Gnostics essentially when it comes to these things. And they, they, they have to equivocate and they have to come up with all sorts of nonsense to try to explain their position. This passage is clear doctrine cannot be explained away by teaching that this refers to only something spiritual such as regeneration. For we have a description of a literal physical resurrection and Christians already possess eternal life. 
Christians don't need regeneration. They don't need to be raised from the dead spiritually. They already are. And what about Christians who are not born yet? Well, it can't refer to them. They can't be regenerated before they exist. So you can't explain this away by trying to spiritualize it. In addition, it cannot refer to only a release of souls from Hades without reference to a literal resurrected bodies, because number one, if there is no literal bodily resurrection of the dead, what is the point of taking the souls of unbelievers out of hell to place them back in hell? What's the point? The passage teaches that having one's body go into eternal destruction is something worse and more terrifying than only the soul's punishment in hell. And Jesus warned us very clearly about the body and soul punishment. He, he, he did so explicitly, Matthew 5.29. Remember that? Hey, don't fear those who can kill the body, but rather fear him who can cast both body and soul into hell. Now, in the first part of the verse, it's, he's obviously referring to the literal body. Unbelievers can't kill the soul. They can only kill the physical body. So therefore, consequently, grammatically, the second half of the verse has to be referring to a real body as well. But they deny that because they're heretics. <clears throat> Number two. The passage describes a universal judgment of unbelievers and cannot be restricted to the historical judgment of Israel in AD 70, which, according to Josephus, only included about two and a half million souls. The estimates are, the high estimates are about two and a half million people were killed. <clears throat> in addition, there was no bodily resurrection in AD 70. None. So we must really note, and this is important, that the judgment described in this vision is a general universal judgment. It is a judgment over all men, a judgment passed upon the wicked and upon the righteous at the same time. Full preterists who deny a future general judgment in favor of only a singular or individual judgment of each person at death, that's how a lot of them get around it. You know, we have these descriptions of the final judgment. There's a number of them in the New Testament. And they all describe something that happens on that day, the day of the Lord, okay, the day of Christ's return. It's, it's a singular event, but they have to spread it out progressively throughout history. Otherwise, they have to admit they're wrong, so they completely ignore what the passage teaches. <clears throat> and they usually do this based on Hebrews 9.28. And it's appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. Well, does the final judgment occur after death? The answer is yes. Does the souls of the wicked immediately go to hell at death? Yeah, it certainly they, it does. But this Hebrews 9, 28 does not deny what the Bible teaches about the final judgment at all. Uh, people who believe such foolishness should uh, listen to Lewis Burkhoff. Let's listen to what he says here. Some regard the final judgment as entirely unnecessary because each man's destiny is determined at the time of his death. That's probably the main popular view, I would say, of full preterist. If a man fell asleep in Jesus, he is saved, and if he died in his sins, he is lost. 
since the matter is settled, no further judici judicial inquiry is necessary, and therefore such a final judgment is quite superfluous. But the certainty of the future judgment does not depend on our conception of its necessity. God clearly teaches us in his word that there will be a final judgment, and that settles the matter for all those who recognize the Bible as the final standard of faith. Moreover, the underlying assumption on which this argument proceeds, namely that the final judgment is for, a is for the purpose of ascertaining what should be the future state of man, is entirely erroneous. It will serve the purpose rather of displaying before all rational creatures the declarative glory of God in a formal forensic act, which magnifies on the one hand his holiness and righteousness, and on the other hand his grace and mercy. Moreover, it should be borne in mind that the judgment at the last day will differ from that at death of each individual in more than one respect. It will not be in secret but public. It will not pertain to the soul only but also the body. It will not have reference to a single individual but to all men. End of quote. That's a great quote. I like Burkhoff. Now, that's absolutely true. And the point I would add to what he said is that the in, in the, the, the Westminster Standards and the Reformed Creeds and Confessions emphasize this. It it's the last act of public glorification of Christ. The one who is spit upon by mankind and tortured and murdered and declared to be uh, deserving of death unjustly by the wicked. He's the final judge and it's a public event. This, this is the last act in pre-consummate history of Christ it's the final chapter of Christ's glorification, which begins at the resurrection. Resurrection, ascension, sits at the right hand of God, comes again to judge the quick and the dead, sits on that white throne, judges all humanity. At the same time, it's a public event. What more could, I mean, talk about glorifying Christ. All these wicked uh, atheists and socialists and communists and Christ-haters and persecutors of Christians who mock the Bible have to stand publicly before Christ and be cast in the and condemned to the lake of fire. It's going to glorify Christ. It's going to glorify God. That's why it, God does what he wants, obviously. Number three. Like 1 Corinthians 15, the final judgment of Revelation 20 introduces us to the consummate state where sin, death, suffering, pain, heartache, depression, disease, violence, etc. is non-existent. Revelation 21, 1-4. And I think, I think I need to consider that uh, next week. It's, that's another passage. There's just no way to spiritualize away, you know, no more tears, no more suffering, no more crying. How do you, how do you get rid of, how do you say that that's happened when obviously they're still suffering every day? Further, the judgment described in Revelation 20 cannot be progressive. That is something that happens throughout New Covenant history as each person dies. For the resurrection of the dead in this passage and all others is universal. And scripture consistently teaches the unity of the eschatological complex. It's not just my position. It's the position of Calvin and Luther and all the reformers. Every branch of the Christian church has always taught this. Well, except premillennialists, they want to divide the rapture and the second coming. Uh, by a thousand years from the judgment. Totally unscriptural, totally nonsense. But we're not dealing with that today. You can read my book on that, reformedonline.com. 
the second coming, the general resurrection of the dead, the rapture of the saints, and final judgment occur on the same day. That's what the New Testament teaches. Matthew 13, 39-40, 25-19-46, 1 Thessalonians 4, 14-17, 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-10, Daniel 12, 2, John 5, 28-29, 2 Peter 3, 9-11, etc. The complete elimination of all the effects of the fall on creation immediately follows the second coming and final judgment. Revelation 21, 1 and 2 Peter 3, 7. Is the creation still affected by the fall in our day? Absolutely. Death, suffering, slaughter, disease is happening all the time. All that snow out west, in the Sierra Nevada mountains, in the Colorado Rockies, thousands and thousands of deer are starving to death. Thousands of animals are starving to death. When there's, you know, 30, 40 feet of snow, it's pretty hard to find food. That's why you see deers eat a lot. They'll eat bark and stuff. and They'll, they'll even chew on pine needles. But thousands of animals are starving to death this winter because it's such a severe winter. The coming time when Christ's redemptive work completely eliminates the bondage of corruption from creation obvious has not yet occurred. Romans 8, 20-21, where Paul talks about yeah, the creation groans. The creation has been subjected to futility and corruption due to the fall of man. And Paul says, yeah, well, that Christ even got rid of that. Every effect of the fall in history will be eliminated by the death and resurrection of Christ. What a blessed, wonderful doctrine, but they deny it. They have to deny it. Because they try to fit everything into AD 70, which doesn't work. And what do they do? They have a very defective view of Christ's salvation. They eliminate the completeness of it. The salvation is achieved perfectly at the cross in history. And then it's progressively carried out throughout history as people believe in Christ and are regenerated and sanctified and so forth. And then, of course, when people die, their souls go to heaven. But the, the complete end, the complete end of that process, the complete glorification of Christ, and end of that salvation process does not occur till the final judgment and Christ comes back. They eliminate that. So their teaching is totally defective on the salvation of Christ. And because they have that defective view, they believe everything happened in AD 70, they have to go back to Genesis and pervert Genesis and teach that death existed before the fall. You see what a terrible heresy this is? It's a damnable heresy. It's terrible. Yet it's popular. And it's idiotic. Yeah, there are great similarities between what happened in AD 70 and, and some of the passages about the second coming. There are similarities. But they, there are also similarities between Old Testament passages about God coming in judgment in the Old Testament. We don't confuse that with the second coming of Christ. Historical judgments throughout history are days of the Lord. They are a day of the Lord with a small d. And they all point to what? The day of the Lord in capital letters where Christ returns for the final complete judgment. <clears throat> to hold to their heretical paradigm, full preterists must not only ignore the analogy of Scripture, but also the plain meaning of the words themselves. While Revelation is full of symbolism, the final overthrow of Satan... All, un all unbelievers or enemies of Christ, death itself, 
and all the effects of Adam's fall could not be more clear. The only reason that folk preterists must twist scripture and make it teach what it does not actually say is because of their heretical presuppositions demand it. And then we come to the standard of the final judgment. In verse 12b, we are told, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Now, the meaning of this verse is very plain. There is a record of everything everyone has done, whether good or bad, whether good or evil. And one's works will be evaluated by Jesus Christ on the day of judgment. And this teaching is found throughout Scripture, just, just a few passages. Uh, Psalm 62, 12, you, you will render to each one according to his works. Uh, Proverbs 24, 12, he will, not render, uh, will he not render to each man according to his deeds? Matthew 16, 26 to 27, For what profit is a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his own works. John 5, 28 to 29, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. 2 Corinthians 5, 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Ephesians 6, 7, 8, with goodwill doing service as to the Lord, not to men, knowing that whatever good he does, he will be received the same from the Lord. Now remember that the rewards of grace that we receive on the day of judgment, when we see, sit before the judgment seat of Christ, that's taught in Corinthians very clearly, our, our works for Christ will be evaluated. What we did for Christ will be evaluated, and it will be rewarded, and if it's bad, if you're teaching heresy, for example, or doing something that's not biblical, uh, that'll be burned up as fire, though your soul will be saved. Uh, that is not merit. That has nothing to do with achieving salvation. God, uh, Christ, uh, decided to reward people for doing good works in heaven. These are rewards of grace. We don't deserve them. Any good we do is because of the Holy Spirit. We don't deserve these rewards. So they're, they're rewards of grace. That's what Calvin says, anyway. Colossians 3, uh, 23 to 25, whatever you do, do it heartily as of the Lord, not to men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. And then Revelation 1, 23, I'll give to each of you according to your works. The Bible's very clear. There is a, there is a judgment and evaluation. Christ, who is both God and man, is omniscient, and he knows everything that has ever happened, exhaustively and perfectly. The point of a scroll or book, and whenever you see the word book in the New Testament, it really means scroll. For us, it means book. They didn't have books. They had scrolls. With a record of everyone's works is to make it very clear that nothing will be overlooked. Although there is no such thing as salvation by works, Ephesians 2, 8-9, etc., for even our best works are tainted with sin, Luke 17.10, there is damnation by works. The soul that sins must die. The wages of sin is death. All have fallen short of the glory of God. There's none who does good, no, not one. And that includes the second death, unless you become a Christian. The only hope of escaping the curse of the law is to believe in the person and work of Christ. If one looks to Jesus for salvation, his sin and guilt is imputed to the Savior on the cross, and the penalty that he deserved, the curse of the law, is paid for in full by the Redeemer. 
a substitutionary sacrifice, vicarious atonement. He died in your place. He suffered in your place. He took the penalty in your place. So God doesn't overlook sin. He punishes it in full. But instead of you enduring it in hell, Christ endured it on the cross. In addition, <clears throat> the perfect righteousness of Christ is reckoned to the believer's account. Those who didn't have the wedding garments on were not welcome to the wedding feast, but cast them out into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. What are the wedding garments? That represents the perfect righteousness of Christ. On the day of judgment, and that's why Christians, you know, obviously we still sin, obviously we struggle with sin, we have the flesh. But don't fret, don't give up. You know, obviously you have to fight against it, but don't give up. For on the day of judgment, you're not let in because you're good. You're let in because when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ. He doesn't see your filthy rags, which Christ removed. Now, obviously we live uh, covenantally faithful lives. We're not up fornicating and stealing and so forth. But we're far from perfect, and we sin every day, and we have to pray every day. This is how our names are written in the Book of Life. The Book of Life contains the names of the elect, the invisible church, and it is the membership role of those who are really in the covenant. In Revelation 13.8, it is called the Book of Life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. I better stop here. I'm running out of time. The standard of judgment will be the revealed will of God, in particular God's moral law. I think I'll stop here because um, I think I've already gone over an hour. But, I mean, if you're honest with the text, obviously there are things in Scripture that are metaphorical. Obviously there are things that, you know, like when the Bible talks about regeneration, it talks about a, a spiritual being raised up spiritually. Christ. But you can tell what's being literal and what's being metaphorical or spiritual by the context. And of course, you have to use the analogy of Scripture. You can't spiritualize these very clear passages away. And you have to do great violence to the Word of God to make the stuff fit into the AD 70 paradigm. And of course, I wanted to get to some application, but think about this. Uh, if everything happened in AD 70 and the world's still full of sin and violence and death and suffering and Christians are still being killed and locked up um, what kind of salvation is that? I mean it, it's, it, it's not, it's not a, Christ achieved a perfect victory yeah it's progressive in history yes we're persecuted in history yes we're going to suffer and we have to fight against sin in history but a time of perfect justice, a time of perfect, where salvation, the, the salvation process comes to completion, hasn't happened yet. And to say it happened in AD 70 when it's obvious that it is not, is absolute foolishness. It's insanity. It's irrational. And there's no scriptural evidence for it. The fact that there are similarities between what is described in Matthew 24 about AD 70 and similarities between that and descriptions of the second bodily coming of Christ with a bodily resurrection, with the judgment of all men, the wheat and the tares, and so forth. Uh, there are similarities between the coming of Christ and the days of the Lord in the Old Testament as well. We don't equate the two. Let us pray. Father, we thank you, Lord. What a great salvation. What a great salvation. 
we bow the knee to your son, Jesus Christ. We bow the knee. We worship him. He achieved a perfect, full, complete salvation. He defeated the devil. Definitively at the cross. The gospel is progressively going forth and converting the nations. We are in the millennium now. But that day of perfect justice, the final judgment where Christ receives his final act of clear public glorification has not yet come. Lord, cause us to walk uprightly, cause us to obey your law, cause us to be covenantly faithful so we can look forward to that day and be ready for the coming of Christ, the final bodily coming. So help us, Lord, to be obedient. In Jesus' name, amen.